0: Geek Show Podcast Network, where the Geek Show's podcast that likes to look at movies starring by or about pop stars. I know the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graeme Williamson. I'm a film critic for The Geek Show and for Horrified, the British Horror website, as well as a filmmaker in my own right. And this week I have been joined by...
1: Uh, yes, Rob Simpson, site editor for The Geek Show and... Self-respecting YouTuber for the gig show. (laughs) That means I'm a YouTuber, but I don't identify as one.
0: Yes, a YouTuber who feels the correct amount of shame. Yes. This week's entry into Pop Screen's Halloween month is a science fiction chiller that takes you on a journey through space and time to a planet completely unrecognisable as our own. I speak, of course, of the early 90s, <laughs> specifically that time in the early 90s where HBO was throwing money at any interesting sounding anthology project it could in order to find the next Tales from the Crypt. None, perhaps, were more intriguing than a black science fiction anthology from House Party producer Reginald Hudlin, named after a Funkadelic album, and hosted by the disembodied head of that band's leader, George Clinton. And if you think this is getting weird, let me assure you, listeners, we are barely warming up. This is cosmic slop.
1: Yes, it's an interesting era that as well, uh, the nineties in Portmanteau. tour. Mm. because uh, the, it was the other black horror uh, anthology, Tales from the Hood. Oh, yeah. Which has been getting a lot of reassessment in recent years.
0: That was planned out as a movie, right? That wasn't one of these things like this or like David Lynch's Hotel Room where they sort of piloted an anthology show, made three episodes, and then decided they weren't going to put it to series, so they put it out as an anthology.
1: Yeah, that's like planned as a movie. But I think the other one, which uh, I think John Carpenter was involved in oh, what was that one called? It was a 90s one. He's actually acts in one of the pieces. I don't know that. I should know that. Oh, hell. Bad something. I should probably find what this is. <laughs> Bad Santa? John Carpenter was in Bad Santa? I know I hit a break at but I <laughs> know <Yeah>, he was. <laughs> yeah, it's like an odd era for the Portmanteau movie, and this is possibly one of the oddest.
0: Definitely, yeah, because I remember I first heard about this when a bootleg of it re-emerged shortly before... Jordan Peele's reboot of The Twilight Zone aired, and a lot of people were making understandable comparisons between the two, that Peele, of course, is noted for bringing new uh, racial and political perspectives to horror when he made Get Out, and then you have this from a, a completely different era in a lot of ways in terms of Black American cinema, but that seems like it's channeling the same sort of, all right, what does it... Heedle's version is so much more than just the Black Twilight Zone, of course, but this is definitely actually going for what if we did the Twilight Zone but did it specifically about race?
1: Yes. It doesn't hide that in mm. any way, shape or form, in any of the three pieces that it puts together. Body Bags is the name of the anthology that I was thinking of oh, with John Carpenter's involvement.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think I've heard of it, but yeah, it's... Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? I don't know why it all happened in the early 90s other than, as I say, just Tales from the Crypt was a hit and people wanted another thing like that. But it it is very weird now that HBO is this bastion of big quality television to think that (laughs) there there was a time when their big channel-defining star was a skeleton puppet who made bad puns.
1: And also there's the, and the the thing that it's known for in certain quarters, I think, Australia and America, hey, Beastmaster's on. <laughs> because they, they had a reputation for always putting Beastmaster on, which is quite a, a world away from the wire and, and things yes. like this that they later
0: produced. <laughs> Hello, you know, the Beastmaster, maybe that was their early experiment with fantasy before they did Game of Thrones. a certain continuity there.
1: Yeah, yeah, it certainly is.
0: I think, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So this is something that is not officially available now. I think there was a VHS of it at some point, which is what a lot of the online copies are based on, but um, it's not looking great when you see it online, I think it's fair to say.
1: There's lots of things that are lost in VHS, uh in archives somewhere, somebody will have a pristine copy of it. Mm. And it will see the light of day one day. And it's one of these rare occasions where the archives being what they are in a lot of places, it's just been thrown out,
0: scrapped, done. Yeah. Done. I, I feel I maybe I'm being fatally naive in saying this, but I can't imagine HBO in the nineties acting like the BBC in the seventies and just junking stuff. I mean,
1: the fact that Severin exists from finding this stuff. Mm. And uh, what vinegar syndrome as well? there uh, Another American company that they just go and hunt this stuff down like a, sn- a pig snuffing. There's uh, a figure of speech I'm going to trip over. Uh, pig sniffing, uh, truffle snuff. Oh, a <laughs> snuffle truffle. Oh,
0: no. <laughs> I'd never realized how every possible mispronunciation of that makes it sound obscene. I uh, yeah, never noticed <laughs> oh. that before. Well, it-
1: the act itself is pretty obscene, no, let's be yeah, honest. Yeah, but, yeah, they, they, dig out, <laughs> they dig out this stuff. It's a weird time for like black culture in America as well. Because outside of sort of the early 90s, hmm. it's a part of the American dollar which was ignored. I mean, there's so much there's like Brother from Another Planet, uh, Tales from the Hoods, uh, Eve's Bayou, um, so many so many things within the genre space and black genre space in this
0: time. I think what what I said once is that African-American cinema is too often like a kind of a commerce where it comes around and has a moment and then just people forget that black filmmakers exist for another 20 years. Hopefully, the current wave seems to be sticking around and I'm optimistic about that, but this is a product of what I think it's fair to say is the, the last major... Wave of Black American filmmakers before the current kind of Jordan Peele, Barry Jenkins kind of era.
1: Yeah, it's fair to yeah.
0: And it's kind Is of it... an interesting one, isn't it? Because it feels like whereas there's, there's a lot of respect paid to the seventies generation of Black filmmakers of that L- LA yeah. Rebellion generation, and quite rightly so. The 90s generation, barring Spike Lee, who's unshakable, the 90s generation, it feels like their reputation is still kind of up in the air, that people don't quite know what to make of that kind of boys in the hood, menace to society either of African-American cinema yet.
1: Yeah, it's kind of in key with the music though, wasn't it? It's, N.W.A. had huge controversy surrounding them. Mm. But... They weren't really advocating gang violence. it was just a commentary on the world that they were living in, yeah, yeah, and the way that that sort of era is looked at, you can't really separate it's it's separating the art from the artist, isn't it? I mean that's mm. totally what's happened there,
0: yeah. But around the edges, I mean, you know, one of the negative parts of Boys in the Hood being such a hit was that obviously a load of imitators were made of it. Some of them weren't that great, as with anything else. But around the edges, you have some interesting things being made. And this is a really weird one, because even now I cannot imagine this being made. We've mentioned Jordan Peele a few times, and it is worth mentioning that yes, Get Out is definitely about race, but Us isn't, and he deliberately made it so people would think it was about race and then hopefully ask, you know, why did I think this had to be about race just because it's about a black family, but this is, like, massively unapologetically about race in in a way that still feels kind of progressive and interesting today.
1: To use sort of a contemporary voice that this sort of feels like maybe... Boots Collins? Oh, what's his name? There's... Sorry to bother you, director. I've nearly got his name right there. Oh, Boots Riley. Boots Riley. There we go. It has that. Yeah, definitely. I don't even... Yeah. Don't, don't even... It, it's a style that is not possible to put your finger on, really, because it's so out of this world,
0: really. we got to do a Sorry to Bother You episode sometime. I'm confident oh, that yeah. that'll happen. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's inter- interesting that you should bring him up, though, because of course the common denominator is that these are both black film projects drawing inspiration from black music that Boots Riley was a founder member of the coup and this has George Clinton so what I couldn't say that I'm a George Clinton expert because he has recorded 8 billion albums <laughs> with almost as many different band lineups but um what's your level? What do you know about George Clinton? It's
1: As actual first-hand experience, I'm not overly averse, you know, other than it being one of these sort of temples of 60s, 70s, 80s uh, music. Just, you know of it, you hear it. It's just, you experience it if you osmosis. But my experience with Funkadelic is much more with the outfits that the huge number of, like, outfits that are, like, bubbling around now that he's uh, inspired... Mm. The likes of uh, Thundercat, who you can now hear on the Coca-Cola advert, which feels weird. <laughs> <laughs> really weird. It was one of those, hang on, is that Thundercat? Which, even mm. if you don't know who Thundercat is, the fact that me saying that sounds weird. It sounds like you've had a problem, and I'm thinking it's Hira or she or whatever it was called. <laughs> I don't know. No, he's a funk bassist who mm. work, has worked a lot with uh, Flying Lotus. It was another one who was the Funkadelic influence there is... Yeah absolutely indisputable. It's just, yeah, it's bands like that. You learn about the history through the influences. And yeah, he's super important for and and George Clinton.
0: Because if you're of our generation, of course, you will most likely have first heard George Clinton's music being sampled by De La Soul on Me, Myself and I. Yeah, yeah.
1: And it just draws through. Sampling is one of the,
0: Well, great successes of music, really. It's one of the secret stories, isn't it, of music that um, I I still think sampling doesn't get to you. I still think people don't understand how fundamentally creative and interesting it is in a lot of ways.
1: Essentially, you have to find the beat of the song and match it to another beat of another song and interweave it. That is not throwing things around and willy-nilly. It's... Harder than a guitar, I can imagine. Harder than any Mm. instrument, but it's hugely impressive and, yeah, it keeps music alive in a way that nothing else does.
0: It does, yeah, and I think one of the things that it does around this time, around the time that this film is made, is it gives a sense of continuity to African-American music that otherwise wouldn't be there, because throughout the 60s, 70s and 80s, you have a lot of fairly disjointed, disconnected scenes. You have the sort of Motown wave of soul, which then goes away. Then you have disco, which then goes spectacularly away, like there's a real scary reactionary backlash to disco and then you have Chicago House and there are sort of connections here but unless you clued into them it's just like every now and then there's a new thing and what sampling does is it allows groups like NWA or Public Enemy or De La Soul to actually say no look we are in the tradition, in one particular way, of James Brown of the OJs of Funkadelic. You know, that is part of our heritage.
1: Yeah, and uh, all those scenes sort of bled into hip-hop of the early pioneers of Africa, Bombarta. Yeah. And all the people working out in New York. Yeah, it's just all feeds into each other very, very nicely as a scene, as a cultural osmosis.
0: So we, we can talk quite a lot about what an important figure George Clinton is. And like I say, I'm, I'm not an expert, but I've heard a fair bit of funkadelic and parliament stuff. I think maggot brain is one of those records that everyone should hear at least once just to like, measure themselves against it. But one of the things that I think can be overlooked when you were talking about what an important and influential figure he undoubtedly is, is that he's a really goofy fucking guy in a lot of ways.
1: Um, yeah, there's a. he's also in Cuso, uh, Stephen Ellison, I think is his actual name, Flying Lotus's directorial debut. Thank God it's his horny movie. <laughs> and, <laughs> it's it's something alright. And George Clinton's in that. Uh, and the scene he's in, well, it's a lot of inner stuff. <laughs> his, a lot of stuff around his butt. And... You gotta be a bit of an odd duck if you're gonna, you know, say yeah, I'll do that. I'm a funk legend and one of the most iconic people in Black American music. I'll do that, no problem. But
0: well, that's kind of part of the Parliament Funkadelic world, isn't it? That it has that scatological side. I was thinking before we did this show, you know, how would you explain Parliament Funkadelic to someone who wasn't aware of it? And I guess if Sun Ra is trying to do the funk Star Trek then George Clinton is trying to do the Funk Red Dwarf.
1: <laughs> yeah, that
0: is perfect. Yeah. So he he first appears on this as a disembodied head, promising something beyond the Twilight Zone, further than the outer limits. He's called the Doctor, and, you know, I know Jodie Whittaker's moving on, so he is hoping someone <laughs> at the BBC is paying attention to this. Um. And, and, yeah, his head just bounces around the screen like the weather report guy on the day-to-day. Yeah, he'll, like, fl-
1: rotate, and he'll have a different haircut. <laughs> and he'll change his voice. He doesn't have, like, his normal speaking voice. He'll either be incredibly deep or chipmunkified. Yes. Yeah, Honestly, I didn't understand what he was saying through all of those vocal effects, to be honest. <laughs>
0: I think a lot of what he's saying is old Parliament and Funkadelic album titles, to be fair, so I, I don't know if you're missing that much, but he, he's, like, he's like the sort of Rod Serling, the Crypt Keeper character of this, and I mean, the Crypt Keeper is a weird character, but George Clinton in Cosmic Slop is just the weirdest host I've seen yeah. in my life.
1: And they were wanting to make a TV show out of this. This is a swinging for the fences job here, Absolutely. if ever I saw one.
0: Yeah. So we, uh, I think I introduced you to this, didn't I, when we did this on Cinema Eclectica a few years back?
1: Yeah, I think it was uh, a Black Horror special. Yeah, yeah, uh, the, it was. Same episode, the same episode where I did Tales from the Hood, and that's on BFI, and that is wild. That actually came around. Yeah. I would recommend people check that out.
0: I remember when we talked about it, you were really intrigued when I said that Reginald Hudling was involved in it. And yeah. that was interesting. I, I knew Reginald Hudling by name. I knew that he'd uh, produced a lot of films, but I'm not sure how I've had that much first-hand experience with him. So what switch went on for you when I said Reginald Hudling?
1: Well, is not necessarily nerdy, but he's comic book related he had a absolutely amazing run on black panther ah uh, sort of paving the way for ta Coates courts and a lot of the black authors who cut the teeth as comic book writers with that character in that universe and when you talk about marvel you think oh it's all sanitized and nice and clean and but no he really puts the Anger and pain and black history and that like I don't think anybody possibly could. We're talking about ninety late nineties, early nineties.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: It's like like a real sense of danger in the things that he was doing, and you know he could work like that within Marvel. It makes an impact.
0: And turn of the millennium, Marvel, which is I mean that's no one's idea of a golden age for the company. No, no, it certainly isn't.
1: And it's also just one of those voices, that one of those names that's always on the edges of a lot of things. Completely, so, yeah, yeah. He's always about, and that makes an impact, I think, yeah.
0: Because he did, he, he's probably most famous for House Party in the 80s, which is, like, one of the very rare African-American films that really broke through in that decade. Yeah. And decade. And he's he's formed a pretty durable production partnership with his brother um, Warrington, who also turns up as a director of a segment here. A year before this came out, they directed the video for Paint the White House Black, which was a solo single by George Clinton. I assume that's where they pitched him this idea. Yeah. So, let's go through the stories. First story is uh, space traders, which I think, I mean, I like all the stories, but this one is incredible, I think.
1: Yeah, it it's basically aliens come, uh, the classic sort of space invaders, flying saucers, come over to America. Uh, they want to talk to somebody. I think it's the vice president they get mm. and they propose a bargain. So we'll give you all the things you need to basically make everybody affluent, get rid of all the pollution, clean up America. Hmm. But in exchange, uh, we want every American who has, I think, 2.5% melanin in their skin. I think that's the Something number. a percentage like that, yeah. Which essentially equates to black people. Yeah, We'll change, exchange all of this affluence
0: and prosperity if you give us all your black people. And there is a fabulous joke where the vice president he gets this offer, and his first reaction is, "What the hell is melanin?" <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's it's balls. I mean, there's a I can't remember closest to getting anything like this dangerous in a story is an old uh, John Travolta movie in which it shit changed black people for white people, so white people were the underclass in America, and black people were. Oh yeah, uh, white man's burden. Yeah. Yeah, that's the closest I've got at anything like this sort of story, but this is ferocious, absolutely ferocious.
0: It is, isn't it? It's written by uh, Derek Bell, who was... I mean, he's more famous as a historian and academic than a science fiction writer. He is one of uh, the developers of critical race theory. So if you have a middle-aged relative whose face is currently, like, bright puce from watching GB News... Uh, Derek (laughs) Bell has probably turned it that way (laughs) okay (laughs) but he's like the first time I heard about Derek Bell was one of these absolutely mad controversies where you remember when did you remember a guy called Andrew Breitbart this is going to lose us so many fans and I don't care I'm not sure sure I'm, he, as, as I've established from a lot of things, I'm bad with names. He was like a Republican rage blogger who... Uh, uh, one of them lot. Yeah, big fat guy, died of a heart attack. And obviously, you know, with this being the Republican Party, everyone was like, a big fat guy who was angry all the time, had a heart attack? I don't know, something smells fishy <laughs> here, and it was revealed that he had a bombshell story about Barack Obama, who was president at the time. They thought, yes, this is it. He's been killed to cover this up. Uh, so they released the story, and it was a videotape of Barack Obama hugging Derek Bell. And even like his fan base were like, I don't know, man, this doesn't seem worth murdering someone over. But of course, because this has happened, because it's been built up so much, there had to be like a big discourse around Derek Bell and his legacy. And it does mean that space traders was actually a part of the 2012 American elections for some goddamn reason. Wow. There was actually discussion about this thing because you know, they had to keep throwing good money after bad and pretend this non-story of the president hugged a man I don't like was like <laughs> a major game changer. of when there's a pretty decent possibility he didn't know who he was. It's yeah quite possible. I mean, he was introducing him at an event, but I'm sure politicians do not know who about 80% of the people I'm introducing at an event actually have. Yeah, entirely. I'm not going to make a political com- political comment because it makes itself. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was... Uh, I didn't realise that this was the same guy who... Uh, had the, the Huggate scandal, as I'm sure someone called it, attached to him. But when you watch the story, you think, yeah, I can see why quite a lot of middle-aged Republicans would be vaguely really angry about this shit. Oh, yeah. It,
1: it, it taps into a weird emotion, you know,
0: because mm.
1: it it's it all set up behind this idea of we'll take a referendum. It's like, uh-oh, there's that word. yeah, And it, it clicks into that sort of disappointment with humans. Like yeah. the day I walk up from Brexit and I thought, oh,
0: right, yeah, people are bad. It does, <laughs> and- it's true. It has that really shattering feel to it where you think, we can't palm this off on anyone else, can we? This is our yeah, mess.
1: Yeah, that sort of rumble in your gut Fair. you just feel wrong. Mm. That's, for a writer
0: to capture that, that's No small faith. And in the context of a story too, which is the most overtly science fictional of the stories here, it's like, if you see the title Cosmic Slop and you don't know that that is a Funkadelic reference. You might think you're going to watch something sort of kitschy and B-movie-ish, and you are going to get the wind knocked out of you by all of these stories. But Space Traders at least has a few bits towards the start where you're seeing the flying saucers gathered in the sky, and you think, oh, yeah, yeah, I kind of get what this is going for. And it's
1: presented with a sense of comedy about it. Mm. It's not, you know, gags, but... It's very satirical and it's very aware. It's sending up basically everything about modern America. Completely,
0: yeah. Which it's ferocious about it, yeah. I think about the only thing that, like, it, it doesn't get right is that there appears to be, like, a moderate Republican administration in power who want to get scientists on their side before they make policy. And you, Well, that's okay. It is science fiction, after all. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's really a strong start, honestly. It's... Yeah.
0: It's so good, and it has loads of just little tiny grace notes. I mean, um, the Alien Referendum, there's like a TV uh, panel... I guess you'd call it there's a tv panel to discuss this and the host is casey Kasem, who was like a veteran radio dj who um is probably most famous internationally as the voice of shaggy on scooby-doo um I'm really sort of glad that Casey Kasem was in this because what one of my childhood favorites cartoons was Transformers. And I found out much later that Casey Kasem used to do the voices for it, but actually resigned because there was one late episode where there were a load of totally gratuitous anti-Arab stereotypes because it was the 80s. And that was in yeah. fashion. Um so, yeah, really decent guy. And I was really charmed to see him turn up and confirm his really decent guy status in this. Uh, I'm not sure I know him. Who does he play in this? He's like, when they have the referendum, he's like the TV host, the chat show host who comes on.
1: Oh, and the sort of black news reader?
0: No, no, that's um, the black news Cause, reader. Cause he was familiar and I not place that. Robert Gualiam, who I think also does a lot of voice acting, but I think he's he's been in some live-action stuff before. But, yeah, Kasem's on the talk show later on. Uh, Gualiam has some pretty great stuff to read, though, because the first thing we get is a load of news about uh, historically black cities that have been exposed to dangerous levels of carcinogens and a racial wage gap. So it it sets up that even though this is near future America, it's got a lot of the same problems as present day America. And it sets up the kind of society that this is taking place in before you get onto the dilemma, which I think is really important.
1: And I think like little small jabs in the grand scheme of what it's trying to say as well, uh, I can't remember the roving reporter, but he has the most right wing sort of Texas area
0: Newsreader man name. I've I've, ever I've, seen. I noted this down because I thought it was great as well. He's called Strikerovac. Yeah, it's like perfect. The perfect
1: <laughs> little jab there. It's not a big one, but it gets right in the ribs. <laughs>
0: and this i mean for something that is about half an hour long this plays out on an amazing number of levels of society we've mentioned the news reporters we've mentioned the president but there's also an ordinary black family in this who are trying to work out how they deal with going about their everyday life where they have this existential threat hanging over their head
1: yeah and it doesn't end on an easy note uh talking around it there's a promise of going to london and yeah. the way it pulls that like 100 families uh, get smuggled to America, um, smuggled from America, to England, I say, should mm. say. And the way they pull that rug from underneath here, it's a cruel blow to a cruel story,
0: honestly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I think, I mean, it has its dated elements, the yearly oh, computer yeah. effects look about as you'd expect them to look, but I think as a short film on its own right, the space traders is a goddamn knockout. It's so good. Yeah. And it
1: retains an awful lot of power by keeping some level of ambiguity. We don't understand why the aliens want black yes. people. It just yeah. we get to them being beamed up effectively. And then it just that's it. We don't know why or where. That's as close as you're gonna to get to that conundrum. Yeah. And that's which yeah
0: it it works so well because there is always that possibility that they are being taken away to some alien paradise where they'll be treated like Kings, but you never know. That's the, the horrifying part of it.
1: Yeah, it's a political statement and it's not making a political statement. Mm. So yeah. Yeah. entirely.
0: Yeah. So that's fantastic, and then it's it's got a segment that's written and directed by Warrington Hudling. Um, so, like I say, the the two the first story is based on the work of a well-known author. The final one is, but this is purely an author piece by the Hudling brother, who doesn't normally direct, uh, which is quite surprising. But I think this this comes off pretty damn well. Yeah, it's. Very, very
1: different. Uh, I came into this expecting, like, pure sci-fi. Mm. And I, I guess you could call this sci-fi, but it takes it from a completely different end of the American experience, where that's all about an entire subsect of the country. Yeah. An entire race of the people who make up that country. This looks at religion mm. in a much more nuanced way than something you'd expect for something called cosmic slop. <laughs> yes.
0: And that's what I think, this is another area where I think this is terrifically ahead of its time, because if someone made this story now, people would have the genre categorisation, like snap of the fingers, they'd say, aha, folk horror, this is folk horror. It has that same motif, even though it's not in the British context we usually see folk horror in, but it has that same motif of the old religion, reasserting its power in, in the modern environment. It
1: it's a hard thing to explain, really. Um, there's a Puerto Rican priest mm-hmm. in Queens, or I can't remember what it is in New York. Yeah. And there's a statue. A mm. statue which has connections to Puerto Rico, but it's of also cultural, historical significance to the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church, you know, lots of money in there, lots of. Irish power in there, hmm. wants to remove it from the suburbs, from the Puerto Rican suburbs in New York, and put it in a museum. Yeah. So uh, they pull it out of there, like, much to the protest protestations of the local people, and then it changes and becomes a living thing.
0: Yeah, because this is this is about... I can't remember what the name they give. It's, it's one of those Caribbean religions... Uh, apologies for me, just sort of misremembering this entirely. But it's one of those that is kind of syncretist. They have taken influences from Catholic and other Christian missionaries, and they worship some of the Catholic saints, but they also worship gods drawn from african traditions in this case it's the the yoruba river goddess Oshun, which is the sticking point between the church and the local community and i think this makes it probably the only horror movie ever made where the people practicing an ancient caribbean religion are the goodies
1: yeah and all that really seems to happen is they get you know blessed and there's some dancing
0: Yeah, essentially. Yeah, it it looks like a pretty fun time at church.
1: Yeah, I don't remember
0: having any fun when I was a kid going to uh, (laughs) Sunday school. Yes. (laughs) And anything like that. Yeah, the Anglican church is noticeably not as good at dancing.
1: No, no.
0: I remember uh,
1: going to a Christmas do and making a, a... costume
0: and I made a devil and I wasn't ever welcome again <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I want your childhood to be like, that's wonderful
1: Yeah, it was I remember sitting on my own a lot so I don't fit in with the crowd and then I just the young rebel and me decided I'm making a devil costume and then that's it Get <laughs> out
0: <laughs> I don't know what Warrington Hudlin's personal religion is but this feels a lot like the kind of work by christian artists that i really like the kind of martin scorsese stanley spencer kind of side of things where it is all about asking how christian ideals and christian faith works in the world right now not an idealized version of first century palestine or renaissance italy it's about having the most sharpest confrontation between religious iconography in the modern world as you can. And this has a pretty golden example of that, where the Virgin Mary walks through a Harlem crack house. Yeah, and goes and sits down and blesses all the crackheads. Man, it's, I mean, it's great, but it's the sort of stuff that about 10 years before this, Jean Luc Godard was crucified for less than this.
1: <laughs> the cast 12, though, for that role. Just the, the yeah. actor that they get to play the the Virgin Mary uh, proxy it has it reminded me of what um or oh, what he, the director of Eyes Without a Face can't remember uh, off the top of the head. Franju, Georges Franju. What he said about his leading lady, he, he said that she almost floated on air. She had a yeah ethereal quality to her, it was just like a like an angel, basically. And yeah. this, this actor has that same sort of presence about her.
0: Yeah, she's called Noelle Balfour, who doesn't seem to have done sort of much that caught my eye. And she also doubles up when you, you see an apparition or a statue of Oshun, it's her as mm. well. So the, the story's essential point that these old traditions are working through newer religions and new ways of life is reinforced by the casting there. I have a big soft spot for movies where the Virgin Mary just rolls up out of nowhere. (laughs) It's just one of my things. It's the thing I liked about it though, is it's where American
1: stories, Mm. there's like, it ties into what racists say, like go back to where you came from. Mm,
0: mm -hmm. And this is
1: the thing where it's, Taking everything back to its origins, like yeah. the African origins, the Caribbean origins, the Hispanic origins, and it's just making America into this untenable spaghetti of everything. Yes. Which nobody has the nuts to do anymore. Mm. You know, because to a lot of people, America is a white country. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think you could really say, no, it ain't. It's all these things. It's not that in a movie, any way shape our farm, but the Hudlins have some cojones about them to actually try and pull this off.
0: Well, what if, one recent movie they did remind me of, and I think one of the few recent movies that you can plausibly compare it to in terms of its politics. You know that bit in Black Klansman where uh, John David Washington is talking about double consciousness, the idea by W.E.B. Bois that every black man in America is a black man and an American. And you have to find a way of how to be both, of how to do both things at the same time and fit into both parts of society. And this is, of course, about that. As you mentioned, the priest who's at the center of it is Puerto Rican. He is brought in quite cynically by the church authorities because they think that having, you know, if the, I think it's Santeria, if the Santeria worshippers see one of their own, quote-unquote, they'll be less annoyed that they're losing their shrine. But they don't understand that the priest also feels a pull towards his own people, his own people racially, rather than just hmm. his own people religiously. And it explores the idea really, really quite sensitively, I think. It's
1: odd to be more sensitive and dangerous. I yeah, yeah, but it is. is... I don't think I've ever seen anything that's
0: quite so precariously balanced. I think one of the triumphs of watching it as a film um, is that each of the segments has their own distinct tone and they all get to an area that feels quite subversive but in a very different way. Space Traders... As we said, starts off with like fifty style flying saucers and silly news reports uh, by people with ludicrous Republican porn star names, um, but that ends up, as we said, in this like devastating point. And this is this is a kind of low key unease that boils up slowly. Ends kind of anticlimactically. Yeah, yeah, I would say that. Yeah,
1: it gets a lot across about. How complicated America is. Mm. We're yeah. ever sensitively, yeah.
0: And then the last story, I think, again is is a gut punch, but again in a completely different way. Because this is a story by Chester Himes, who's most famous for a groundbreaking uh, crime novel from a black perspective called *Rage in Harlem*. And this, what is the title of this segment again? It was me- *Tang*, wasn't it? Tang, yeah, just Tang, um, which is one of the characters' names, but always makes me think of that bit in The Simpsons where Homer calls President Clinton and asks him if he knows where to get some Tang.
1: Classic <laughs> era Simpsons. Yes. This is an odd thing. Uh, it's a two panda mm-hmm. in a. Sort of place that might uh, be over the road from what was in the second piece, the yeah. the hoods, the dilapidated buildings that are falling down and haven't yeah. had any sort of just a hood. Let's just not over explain it. There's two people there, Tang, and I can't remember the name of the the male character. Uh, Tang and T-Born. Tang and T-Born. T-Born is well, He just drinks all day. Yeah, there's no jobs. And he sends Tang out to do medical research, basically. Go and get these things done to you, get some money so I can have a Burger King. Don't forget to get me an apple
0: pie. Yeah. I think he's, that's introduced, literal. he's introduced laughing uproariously at a TV showing of what's love got to do with it. So you know, this guy is an absolute douche. <laughs> yes. And then there's a knock at the door. Mm.
1: You know, there's a lot of arguing. You know, she, they're both basically about one bad day away from jumping out the window. Yeah. Uh, And then there's a knock at the door, a black guy in a, I think he's in a tux, uh, if Mm. I remember correctly. He's got a box. He says, here's some flowers. Don't up, don't follow the uh, instructions until we tell you to. Uh, And in it is a sniper rifle. Mm. And. It's just about how that changes the power dynamics, because uh, there's a promise of a rebellion in the in the north.
0: Yeah, and the question is: Is this going to be a domestic rebellion? Is it, you know, Tang rising up against her abusive husband, or might it be a wider social rebellion? And it, it feels almost like, one is is almost unreal. It feels almost as if the situation inside the house is creating this kind of wider, radical situation outside of the the window. It feels a bit like... Do you remember that William Friedkin movie, Bug?
1: Yes. Yes,
0: I do. That's a horrible movie. (laughs) Yeah. But it's really claustrophobic, and you're never quite sure whether the people in it are completely deluded or incredibly clear sighted and I think this Tang pulls off the similar balancing act for me
1: Yeah, it has the context again, uh, I don't know what line it was in, uh, what movie it was in, sorry, but so the American dream is a white man's dream and I'm in the wrong country mm. or something to that effect Like uh, the American dream's not for me, that's the spirit behind that how they're in a country which has no opportunities for them, which doesn't care for them. It just sort of puts them in a box and lets them fight amongst each other. That's the sort of the context behind this. And they just, the the characters are just tired. They're just tired of it. And it's probably the least brave of the three. Mm. It's a subtext, which is quite common. Sadly common sad as in it's sad that this is still an issue now but it's a common commonly discussed commonly depicted thing so it the more it appears the less power it has
0: yeah i think so it it doesn't have the same surprising jolt as something like space traders but it it, it is kind of interesting in its tonality, I think, in that it feels a bit like a two-hander play and the dialogue is, is very sort of mannered and theatrical. And that, again, is just like a complete U-turn. It's nothing like the rest of this anthology. It's certainly not like uh, the First Commandment segment before it, which is very low-key and realistic up until it needs to hit you with the fantasy element. But even before things start getting strange in Tang, this already feels like a really weird apartment.
1: It does, yeah. It doesn't feel typical in any way. I mean, the fact that they're going to do medical experiments, it sort of seeds in this maybe there's a sci-fi element to it.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Like The guy who passes off the gun, I mean...
0: Is he real? Because he just vanishes, he sort of fades away. He has a kind of a man-in-black quality, doesn't he?
1: Yeah. yeah. So is this a real gun? Have they lost their minds? Mm. Is this a dream? You know, it's so many ambiguities to it.
0: Yeah, and I think it, it sits a bit oddly at the end of the movie, but I can imagine that if this was picked up and became a series, there would be people talking about it as you know one of those episodes. There would be people thinking, do you remember that Cosmic Slop episode where it was just two people in an apartment and they were trying to work out if there was a revolution taking place outside or not? It would be one of those sort of TV memories that just gets in your mm. head, I think.
1: I mean, it's a pity it didn't actually get picked up because it has the same sort of broad potential and broad DNA that Inside Number 9 does. Yeah. And from the American, uh, Black and Hispanic, and potentially whatever ethnicity perspective that you could
0: imagine. Mm, Yeah. And there's loads of really interesting Black and Latino science fiction authors whose work does not normally get adapted, like Octavia Butler and Samuel Delaney, who you could easily have drawn from.
1: Hmm. Which is a pity, really. I mean, at the end of the day, I really like this. It took me completely by surprise. I didn't know what was coming. I didn't know anything. I just knew George Clinton was involved, and it's weird. Yeah. And for it to hit on so many different levels, it's miraculous, really. And because of that, it's
0: such a crying shame that it never became anything, more. I think I'm kind of in two minds about it, where part of me thinks... This is good, but there's absolutely no way people were ready for it in 1994. No way in hell. It's a huge middle finger to literally everything that America stands for. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, you know, this is the time when Bill Clinton's just in office and he's very much trying to find the middle ground on racism. He's like, he's going to be half a racist. I think that was the solution. <laughs> uh, every alternate day, he will be racist. Um So, yeah, this is not a film for an Eva which is kind of fat and complacent and thinks, yeah, Cold War's over, civil rights movement's over, everything's great now, but watching it today, oh, boy, does it feel like it's ready for today.
1: And outside of the um, bad aged effects and what looks like somebody's uploaded a VHS, like a 20th generation VHS (laughs) on YouTube, (laughs) Very, it could just go out on TV tomorrow.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, people get the same from it, yeah. Even some of the bad effects, I think, are kind of cute, I must admit.
1: Yeah, it's like first generation sort of
0: lawnmower mad CG. See, it looks bad, but if you called it Vaporwave, it would look new.
1: (laughs) Yes. You put a synth scar over it, sort of washed out
0: synth scar,
1: and the internet would go nuts for it.
0: The poster for this is literally a magic eye picture. Yes. That's is. how 90s it gets, yeah. But uh, as we say, presentationally it may have dated, but politically it's absolutely up to the minute and it's so good.
1: Fierce, a fierce
0: thing. Yeah, I think that that's, that's how I'd like to leave off. I would like to leave off with that testimony to how brave and good this almost completely forgotten anthology movie is. It's fantastic.
1: Well, in this age of everything being plucked from obscurity, with labels coming out, all I mean, people often say, home uh, well, media is dead? It's all about streaming, la, la, la. But there's these labels that are going out there, they are doing the real grunt work. They are searching yeah. down people who've got a print of this in their garage. A print of this is owned by Guy Over the Road. Oh, this guy's got a bit of it, and that guy's got a bit of it, and that guy's got a bit of it. I'm yeah. picking it all together, and editing it together, and re-releasing it in 4K, which is outstanding. Mm. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be lost forever. No. I I, I think not. there's a place for this to be rediscovered, and assuming that print in whatever shape it's in wherever it's in that somebody gets lost in the hbo archive and just says oh look there's cosmic swap whatever route that is to see this getting a proper release and proper acknowledgement i think that they can come soon enough really cuz yeah maybe it has inspired the re- regeneration of the
0: series cuz it has
1: yeah. it's the time for it
0: Let's start the ball rolling, because uh, we, we said that someone needs to put out a proper release of Tomorrow I'll Wake Up and scold Myself with Tea. And <laughs> But five short years later, that did happen.
1: Yes, it did, which is still wild. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. So, until next week and our next movie for Halloween month, that's been your lot from Pop Screen. Don't forget, if you enjoyed this show, you can donate to our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show, where you can find a monthly bonus episode of this show, our other movie podcast, Directors' Lottery, weekly Doctor Who reviews from me, and any just bits of odds and sods that we also think are quite interesting. But until then, that's been your lot from Pop Screen. I've been Graham. And I have been Rob. And we'll see you next week.